Anyway, we should start the show while I'm while I'm not coughing, which is a very brief window of time. Fair enough. <laughs> Let, <laughs> God, too late. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Comedy, ladies and gentlemen, it's that. all about timing. <laughs> all about timing. God. Oh man. Uh. <laughs> all right. So while Marco is dying, let's uh, let's let's cover the most important piece of follow up right up top. Uh, is it Yanni or, or Laurel? Go ahead, John. Uh, I don't like that one as much as the dress because although I had a thought about both the dress and and that uh, Yanni Laurel thing, they both kind of the the, the sound one much more than the than the the, the uh, visual one, but they both highlight the fact that even though we're all reading the same internet, the output devices we're all using vary so incredibly widely. Um, the visual ones less than the auditory ones, but both very a lot. Like we all think like, you know, I looked at this picture and I think X and I looked at the picture and I think Y, like with the dress thing. Right. But we're not all looking at the same picture. This is setting aside for a moment, the input device, like ourselves, like the people vary from person to person, which is also more true of the auditory one than the visual one. I think, uh, just due to people getting old and their hearing going bad, uh, uh, versus color, uh, you know, sensing colors, which probably changes with age, but maybe not as much. But anyway, setting aside the person, the device that we're looking at, uh, monitors have different gamma. You're looking at a different, a different lighting conditions, so on and so forth. But speakers, especially in the smartphone age, vary incredibly widely. So for something like the Yanni Laurel thing, where it changes based on how how much where, where the frequency cutoff is, right? Get rid of all the bass. It sounds like one thing. Get rid of all the high frequencies. It sounds like the other. I think that makes that one more boring to me, but it shows like the reason people are so convinced is because they think we're all listening to the same sound and we're not. The sound you get out of your tinny, crappy phone speakers is very different than the sound you get out of your you know, desktop speakers or your laptop speakers or whatever. And then, of course, the input device, if you have cold or you have trouble hearing certain frequencies or whatever. Um, so anyway, uh, I think it's I think it's dumb. I think the dress one was also dumb, but slightly less dumb because uh you could look at the same picture and convince yourself one way or the other, but the audio one, if you, if the frequencies are not getting through to your ear, there's not much you can do to convince yourself. It sounds like the other one, uh, whereas the same picture you could go back and forth on. If you, if you change the frequency cutoff, so it's kind of in the middle, you can hear both of them, but that's like altering the sound. I have heard all of the different variations of hearing both of them or, well, I, I've heard many of the variations and I can only hear one, but, but Johnny, you, no, you answer the question. The New York times one, like they do, a, if you do a hard frequency cutoff of all the low or all the high, it's impossible to hear the other one of the extremes. So, mm-hmm. so what did you, so that's why it's, it's kind of, what crappy. did you hear? So anyway, it also shows how crappy people's speakers are because I have no speakers that I own that can make me hear the the one with all the low frequencies cut off i guess all of my speakers including my crappy ear pods and all of my ios devices have enough bass in them that i can't get it to to sound like the one with just high frequencies well part of that's also that all your speakers are ancient um and <laughs> so, so basically <laughs> like your like, ears yeah like like new new speakers from a lot of different people especially speakers and smartphones as you mentioned they do a lot of processing to try to make up for the inherent crappiness of a speaker that's that small and or cheap. Like if you actually profile, if, if you like, you know, play a test sound out of the iPhone speaker and profile it with some kind of measurement thing, like it's shocking, like how flat of a response curve it doesn't have. Like they, they do a heck of a lot of processing with almost all modern, you know, phone speakers and, and anything with anything like, you know, like the home voice assistant cylinders and everything there's so much processing to try to make up for physics and economics 
that you know you want a very small device, but you want it to sound great. Whereas older speakers, we, they didn't have the electronic resources to do that kind of processing, so they they, they just rely on like physics and quality and, and size. And so you know, old speakers like you will never have like the kind of processing unless something's really going wrong, maybe with the crossover or something, but you would never have the kind of the kind of processing that would heavily alter that sound to sound that different to people. That being said, people's hearing is also very different, as you mentioned, like and it changes as it changes throughout your life as well. You know, we all know that like you know, like that that young people can hear higher frequencies than older people. But also like your hearing does not have a flat frequency response curve either. Like you have peaks and valleys in like w- certain frequencies you hear more strongly than others or have more distortion than others and that's just the realities of us being these big bags of analog meat <laughs> wait but john you never actually answered the question did you it's pronounced syracusa um in it, like i said in, in its normal form uh being play being play, like unmodified like you know not using one of those tools that actually cuts off frequencies in the source sound but just playing it through all my speakers playing it through my my airpods playing it through my phone speaker my ipad speakers my laptop speakers it's laurel for me all the time all the time and i have to really cut off a lot of the low frequencies before it, it switches to yanni like at the source not in you know so I don't I don't have any speakers that have so little bass or to Marco's point, I don't have any speakers that do not massively process the sound to make sure that there is some bass to ever hear the Ani one. And, and you know, I am old, so obviously the high frequencies are probably much, much less audible to me than they are to younger people. So maybe my speakers are playing them. And I just can't hear them. Marco, I know what you're talking about, but only just barely. And I didn't listen. All right. Well, at this very moment, you can drop in a clip for the listeners to hear exactly what I'm talking about. Laurel. Laurel. Uh, but basically, it's like the blue, what was it, blue and gold dress, where you uh, can either hear one thing or hear another, although obviously the dress was seeing one thing or seeing another. But, but, uh, but like it would be like the dress one, but they'd say, oh, but if you can't see the other color, apply this filter that turns everything blue. Don't you see it blue now? It's like, yeah, of course I see it blue now, because you changed the source, right? So the ones, like, if you can't hear it the other way, Cut off all the low frequencies. Oh, great. Well, you're right. Now it sounds different. Good job. You changed the source. Uh, all right. Hold on. Let me listen to it. One sec. The, uh, the New York <laughs> Times one is the best because it has a slider for frequency cutoff. So if you leave it in the middle. All right. One sec. I'll listen to it, but I won't be able to hear you. One sec. Laurel. Laurel. Okay. It's clearly Laurel. It's, it's not even close. Right. But that's just the speaker. So go to the ones that have the cutoff. And the worst part is. All right. Like, hold on. Wait, I need to do this too. So I'm going right, to. Gonna... Laurel. Laurel. Oh, I can kind of, sort of hear Yanny, kind of, when I crank it all the way over. Yeah, so listening in my regular headphones through my decent setup, not even my good headphones, just my regular headphones, I can only hear Yanni on the New York Times one, in the rightmost two notches, like the far right and the one right before it. And, and the one right before it is really kind of a crossover point anyway, so you really got to go pretty far right. Yeah, and I think the middle is the, like, unmodified, I forget yeah. what the unmodified is. Yeah, the middle the is, like, not frequency modified. Hold on, let's bring it back to the show. So we left the show on you going to listen to it, as far as I'm concerned. You don't know when we left the show. Well, Marco decides when we leave the show. Yeah, oh, my God, just work <laughs> with me here. It's power. Right, so, so uh, There's no question it's Laurel. If you're, if you're not hearing Laurel, you have seriously messed up speakers or ears. And that's fine. I'm not going to judge your speakers or ears, but just so you know, they're, they're not normal. 
Uh, although I have I have something to add to what you hear. The thing that really makes this sound also not great is when you hear Laurel, it sounds like someone saying someone's name or, you know, because that's what it sounds like. When you hear Yanny, it does not really sound like a human anymore. It sounds like an audio artifact or a heavily processed person's voice that's been pitch shifted. It does not sound like a person saying that because no one who is saying that word would say it in such a weird way. So I feel like at its at its root, this recording is someone saying Laurel with lots of high frequency noise that happens to sound like a word in the same way that when you play stuff backwards, sometimes it sounds like other words. So I I had only ever heard Laurel until you pointed out this New York Times thing. And when I crank it all the way to the right-hand side, which is Yanni or Yanni or whatever, it's however you pronounce it, I can sort of kind of hear it, but it's still difficult for me to get it. To me, it is so unequ- the, the The raw version is so unequivocally Laurel that it stupefies me that anyone can hear anything different. Yeah, so it's got to be either we're all old enough that our high-frequency hearing is shot, and I think, I forget when your high-frequency hearing really falls off a cliff, but it, we might all be past that age. We're not. Or people are using speakers that really have just no bass whatsoever and they no are. processing, and so all they get is the high frequencies, and then it sounds like some mutant alien saying, Yanny. I mean, basically, where, where you might, where you'd probably hear it, I'm not going to test an app, but where you'd probably hear it is using the built-in speaker on a phone, because that's that's an area where, like, you have a tiny little speaker that is, it's pretty much impossible to get bass out of, out of like, the built-in speaker on the, you know, seven millimeter thick side of a phone. Like, that's, you're never going to get bass out of that. So, it makes total sense that maybe out of phone speakers, especially crappier ones, uh, then, you know, you might hear that. Uh, but a- any kind of, like, headphone or, or regular size speaker I, I can't see how you could yeah not on my phone so what my, on my phone it's 100 percent laurel to me so keep in mind you know like also like apple speakers have been really good recently like in the last few years yeah they the, the physical speakers and apple products have gotten significantly better than not only than, than where they were before but where the competition uh is uh so if anybody on an iphone you're probably not hearing what other people are hearing here if they're listening on their phones so the next time one of these things comes up depending on what it is just remember that like the key Fa- the, the the thing that kills the source of fascination is the idea that we're all experiencing the same thing and coming away with different impressions and that's not true we're all experiencing different things and then on top of that even if we were experiencing the same thing we would have different impressions of it but the, the key the, the part that really kills all these is we're not looking at the same picture and we're not hearing the same you know uh, sound waves going through the air and after that there's even more crap but even before that like the whole premise of the fascination is is killed maybe if we have uh you know if apple ruled the world and everything was carefully color corrected at the factory for all of us maybe it would be closer but you know you know it's like when you go see someone else's television set just you know output devices vary widely and input devices also we are sponsored this week by aftershocks bone conduction headphones visit atp.aftershocks.com and use code atp30 to get 30 dollars off the new weightless wireless trex air I've been telling you for a while about bone conduction headphones. They are great because they don't put anything on or in your ears. They instead send little vibrations through little transducers that sit next to your ears into your inner ear canal through your cheekbones, and that produces sound that you can hear, but no one else can. And you still hear the world around you because your ears aren't blocked. So it's great when you're outside. Uh, you can hear things like cars go by or someone tries to talk to you. You can hear it. It's also great if you're doing stuff around the house and you just want to know, like, you know, if something in the house makes a noise or if someone knocks on the door. It's very practical. So you can, like, be listening to a podcast or taking a phone call with their wonderful built-in microphones and you can actually 
participate in the world around you still and be aware of what's going on around you. There's lots of ways this is very helpful. It's also just really great in the summertime. For me, like any kind of like pad sitting on my ear or thing that goes into my ear just makes me hot and sweaty in the summertime. It's very uncomfortable. The Aftershocks bone conduction headphones don't have this problem because there's nothing in my ear. There's this little tiny contact patch next to my ear. You don't even notice it. And so it's wonderful in hot weather. I highly recommend for workouts or for just being outside in the summertime, check out the Aftershocks headphones. Now, the new model is the Trex Air. I had the Trex Titanium all last summer, and it's great. It's a great headphone. The Trex Air is even better. It's lighter. It's more comfortable, comes in multiple colors now, has a great range, battery life is great, has a great warranty if you need it. I highly recommend checking out the Aftershocks headphones. They are so practical and so useful in the summertime, especially if you spend time outside. So check it out today, atp.aftershocks.com, and use code ATP30 to get $30 off the Trex Air new weightless wireless headphones from Aftershocks. Thank you so much to Aftershocks for sponsoring our show. We have uh, plenty of Google follow-up to do, but before we get there, we have a little bit of uh, Race to Listen follow-up. Ricky Bright writes in to say, Race to Listen is a big, capital B-I-G, according to Ricky, uh, deal for China as it's a pain to type. The default behavior makes sense there. Maybe change the default based on the region. Cool. All right. Bob Burrow, uh, who I guess was an ex-Apple employee or something like that, um, writes in, or wrote on Twitter, I shouldn't say writes in, wrote on Twitter that... Uh, instead of just crawling websites, Google is going to start crawling people. That is deeply disturbing and uh, also accurate. That was in reference to to Google having automated calls to businesses to find out what their hours are on holidays or whatever. And it really is, you know, the web crawler visits every websites periodically and updates their Google search index and stuff like that. And I guess they, their web crawler would be crawling websites and trying to pull uh, you know, holiday hours and hours from the website so that so Google can surface that to people who are doing searches. But in cases where they can't get that information, they will stop crawling the web. And I like this, this you know, this of crawling people of saying, we are Google and our computers may contact you to extract information from you for the purpose of serving that information to millions of people who search for things. And it sounds creepy. Uh, oh, it is creepy. <laughs> well, you know, like I said about the, the creepiness, things that, that initially sound creepy, you eventually just come to get used to. Uh, as a user of the service, I can see the value in having accurate information that would otherwise be impossible to get without doing it by a human. I guess the Amazon way to do it would be to hire a bunch of uh, low-wage people who are up, whose uh, life is partially funded by uh, government subsidies, so you can pay them less than a living wage, and have them call all the businesses and find out the answers. And the Google way is to uh, pay a smaller number of people to write a program to do that same job. That's a pretty accurate summary. Uh, Michael Love writes, another Google Assistant voice call issue, isn't it recording the call? And so wouldn't it be running afoul of the law in two-party consent states? What that means, and I'm not a lawyer, but what that means is you can only record a conversation if both parties have agreed to the fact that it's going to be recorded. Uh, if it's not recording a call, the, the call continues, Michael. How can I check its work and make sure the appointment was actually made as I requested? Although I will say that if you're if you're wanting to listen to the recordings of the call that were placed on your behalf, then maybe you shouldn't be placing these calls through a robot like that that kind of seems to ruin the point of the convenience of this like well that's the accessibility angle like i was saying before that i imagine in cases where you need the computer to help you make a call just as as an assistive device right yeah you would want to you would want to participate 
not just listen to it afterwards, but like be there when it's happening so, again, so you can nudge the conversation in a particular direction because you you are you are trying to use it as an assistive device. You are not delegating responsibility to do this, right? So, um, but anyway, as for the recording thing, I assume it's not recording for the reasons they said. Like it just doesn't seem like a thing you can do because it's it's using regular phone lines and the laws having to do with regular phone lines were from a bygone era when we made laws that tried to protect people's privacy and they're much stricter for what you can do over telephones than they are what you can do over the internet the internet you can do whatever the hell you want to get you can get away with but the the laws for phones are are very clear so i imagine they're not recording it which uh, i think as i said last week if you're trusting this thing to be successful like if i I'm the, you know, I've talked about how I trouble, had trouble with phone trees when they first came out, but I think for something like this, uh, especially in the beginning, since it's going to fail so much of the time, say I used this thing and said, you know, hey, dingus, make me an appointment, make me a reservation at a restaurant, blah, blah, blah. I would spend the rest of the day wondering whether the, the confirmation that it has made that reservation for me is true. I'd be like, but did you? Like, and you'd wonder and you get to the restaurant, you'd be like, God, my phone told me it made a reservation, but the thing breaks all the time. Did it actually make a reservation? And you would get there and be like, we had no, have no idea who you are. And we have no idea what reservation you're talking to. And what are you going to say? I think I told my phone to call you. Yeah. What evidence <laughs> do you have of that? Look, look at this message. That just says, that's just a text message. That didn't call us at all. It's like, no, but I told it this. And then it called you behind the scenes. And then it told me I had a reservation. And you'd be like, well, your phone lied to you. <laughs> like, I don't know. I wouldn't. I just wouldn't trust it. And to trust something like that, kind of like you know, the difference between Siri in the early days and maybe still today, and and uh, the Amazon Echo is, you learn to trust it after it's successful a lot of times, right? Like you just you realize, oh, the the the, the Echo can hear me, and it does do what I asked. Uh, so the first couple of times you're a little bit shaky, but eventually you come to trust it. But like I said, I I don't think uh, people are going to come to trust this because I think its reliability will be very very low. So to go back. Uh, half step with regard to recording. Uh, we don't know if they are being recorded as far as I'm aware anyway, but a uh, friend of the show, Matt Drance wrote a couple of tweets about this. And so Matt writes, so I have some questions about this section of the duplex blog post and he posts a screenshot and a link. And the summary of the screenshot is that Google is saying that duplex is capable of carrying out sophisticated conversations and it completes the majority of its tasks fully and autonomously without human involvement. The system has a self-monitoring capability, which allows it to recognize the tasks that cannot complete autonomously. And in this case, it signals to a human operator who can complete the task. To train the system in a new domain, we use real-time supervised training. This is comparable to the training practices of many disciplines, blah, blah, blah. But what Matt points out is, and now I'm quoting from him, so you throw a request over the fence to assistant, which may or may not bring a total stranger into the call with my doctor, my therapist, my lawyer. Please tell me I'm missing something. And that was a, a, a use case, or not really a use case, but that was just a, a wrinkle that I had never even considered, which I thought was really fascinating, is, you know, we're, we're potentially exposing really, really private information or data, I guess, about ourselves to potentially humans at Google that we may not particularly want to have that information about. But you don't have to worry about that because the user agreement, they make you blindly, uh, you know, blindly click through to get to it, signs over all your rights to every piece of privacy in your entire life to Google and says that you agree that it's okay that Google knows everything about you. So don't worry, Google won't get in trouble. <laughs> True. Uh, but I don't know. It just seemed really, really weird to me. And it's it's tough because I, 
I do appreciate, as we mentioned uh, last episode, as you mentioned, John, a minute ago, I do appreciate that there are people for whom this could be a just world-changing uh, a product in that, you know, you either are incapable of using the phone or perhaps using the phone is, is very, very difficult um, or something like that. And so for an accessibility purpose, this is really, really brilliant technology. But I think the thing that we all keep coming back to, and I don't remember if it was Marco or or maybe Jason or Mike on Upgrade, somebody said recently, you know, the thing that I think we, we all find most creepy is that it's not identifying itself as a computer, which brings us to our next bit of follow-up. Google says its human-sounding robot will identify itself on the phone calls. <laughs> so apparently uh, the, Google noticed that the internet was not happy. And they're saying that, you know, that in the future they will identify themselves as non-human at some point during the call. That really takes the wind out of their sails, though, because most of the wow factor of that demo was was the fact that the computer sounded a lot like a person down to the pauses and the ums and the whatever. If you take out the, the ums and, you know, just leave the time gap pauses, it really highlights the parts where you notice that this this uh, thing on the other end of the line says the same word exactly the same way every time, like it doesn't have much variety, right? You can tell it's artificial, and the ums really sell it. But if you're if it identifies itself as an automation, but then it does um and stuff, it's like, come on, come on, computer! Like I don't have time for you to you know play human. Just I, you identified yourself as not human. Don't keep trying to do things the human do. You know, be efficient, be be a machine, and get get the job done, make the sale, make the reservation, whatever. Also, uh, Hey You DVD just posted a uh, link to Reddit in the chat, and I'm going to read this whole thing. It's not very long, but it's, it's fascinating. It's titled, Today I Realized I Live in the Future, and it reads, I got a call at work today. A woman uh, called me claiming to be Google Maps, and she wanted to know our opening hours. We went through what hours we were open for weekdays, clarified the weekends, and said goodbye. She never told me her name, and her responses were a bit odd, but I put it down to a language or cultural barrier, though she spoke very very cleanly in English, as her accent was, it was Southeast Asian, and I live in Australia. It was otherwise unremarkable. I told the store manager, I'm in a manager and their first response was was it a person i said yeah of course he said are you sure then it dawned on me i checked google and our hours were already updated but one day was slightly wrong it's logistically impossible to have the manpower to call every establishment and confirm their opening hours i wasn't talking to someone from google maps i was talking to google maps i was talking to a computer and i had absolutely no idea wow yeah, the, the main thing these uh, these things have going for them in terms of making people think they're humans is that humans have widely varying behavior on the phone, right? Especially with the fidelity of phone lines, you can't hear the sort of audio artifacting and like computeriness uh, of the of the, the actual speech synthesis. It, it all just becomes mush over over you know a pot system. And then you're just left with, oh, this person just sounded weird. And like, maybe they weren't a native speaker, but they didn't have an accent. But anyway, people are weird, whatever. A couple of quick topics to start us off. Uh, First, I wanted to recognize that on Recode, uh, actually a couple of weeks ago almost, uh, there was a post where, which is entitled, Amazon employees are outraged by their company's opposition to a plan to add more diversity to its board. And... Um, it, uh, my, my understanding of this entire story is that Amazon did the same thing Apple did, which is they said, no, 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 we're not going to go out of our way to add diversity to our board. Our board is our board and basically go screw yourselves. But apparently a whole bunch of Amazon employees have been getting really angry about this and seemingly 
Amazon has said, okay, no, actually, we'll we'll take this seriously and we'll try to make our board a little more diverse. And I just wanted to call attention to this because Apple has gone through this exact same thing and they basically told us to pound sand. And well, not us specifically, but they've told the people who have brought this complaint to pound sand. And I just find that kind of gross. And I just wanted to say that, hey, this is kind of cool that Amazon is doing something that Apple uh, refuses to. And that's neat. I still think it's like I said when we last discussed this is little actually to do with the nature of the shareholder proposal. Right. Like it doesn't matter what it could be like. We should all wear blue hats on Wednesday and a lot (laughs) to do with the fact that companies like Amazon and Apple and any big company does not want to be told what to do by uh, a section of shareholders, right? They, they'll, they'll be told what to do by majority shareholders or a very large percentage shareholders, but small activist group of shareholders trying to tell the company what to do, not just like broadly speaking, but specifically you must agree to this plan and it becomes a thing that you have to do as a public company. They don't want to be bossed around and say, you're not the boss of me, right? And so it looks bad when the thing they're telling you to do is probably a thing that you want to do. Like Apple has tons of diversity initiatives and so on and so forth. But these things usually come down to, you must do exactly X, Y, and Z. And Apple says, all right, we want to, if we want to improve diversity on our board, we want to do it our way. We don't want the terms to be dictated to. We don't want you small group of shareholders to convince a larger group to vote for this thing. And now we're beholden to your exact plan of an exact, uh, you know, milestones and everything. Um, and so it's not a good look for any of the companies and they should, Amazon seems like they're handling it much better, but I bet the outcome is Amazon says we now have a new program to improve the diversity of our board, but it won't be, they won't be bound by it in the same way they would have been if all the shareholders voted uh, for this thing. You know what I mean? Um, so that's why these companies just reflexively, recommend against any shareholder recommendation to do anything ever because shareholders are not the boss of them until they are (laughs) exactly and so rounding out the uh, casey complaints about every public company uh, episode uh, twitter is a bunch of jerks and uh, as much as i love twitter basically they can go themselves because they have announced uh, today, as we record, that they are replacing the the API they provide that that basically is behind any of the third party Twitter clients that any of us may use, and they're replacing it with their Twitter's account activity API, which is not nearly as full featured as what it replaces and is hilariously expensive. So, uh, Sean Heber of um, of the Twitterific folks at Icon Factory, uh, he wrote, the public pricing that I'm seeing shows Twitter's account activity API pricing is $2,899 a month to get activity updates for 250 users. Needless to say, we have more than 250 users. It's possible an enterprise deal could be made, but it seems likely to be affordable. And so you can assume that the, you know, that, that, Twitterific, that that Tweetbot has many, many thousands of users, if not tens of thousands of users. And you can see how this quickly becomes unsustainable. And in fact, friend of the show, uh, Craig Hockenberry wrote, the math works out to about $10, $10 per user per month to get push notifications. And that means that they would have to, in order to you know, stay afloat, they would have to push that cost down to all of their users. So Craig continues, on a platform where people balk at spending 99 cents. Don't forget about Apple's 30% cut. Yeah, exactly. So So it's really like, what is it, $15, $16 or something like that per user per month? It's just not tenable. And so, you know, Gruber wrote earlier tonight, 
and I don't have the quote in front of me at the moment, but he had a really good analogy, and he said in so many words, it's like breaking up with somebody by just being a really, really big jerk until they go away. And that's kind of what Twitter's doing with third party uh with third party clients right now. And it just it not only it not only makes me sad, but it makes me friggin' angry. I don't know, maybe I'm going through the five stages, right? But it just makes me angry because it's it seems unnecessary. Like this, they already have something that is working. And it doesn't seem like they're doing a lot to update it. I can't imagine that just keeping it working as is is that terribly expensive or difficult. But they really want to tell all of the uh, all the third-party developers to, as I said earlier, pound sand. And it's just frustrating. They have. I saw the the thread that Craig linked to of like there was some party from Twitter saying, "Oh, well, we want we have a new set of microservices that are." implemented in a more robust way and we're transitioning to them and like that that could be a reason but the most the most frustrating thing to to me from the outside of looking at this uh eternal struggle between third-party developers and twitter is that twitter does things that affect third-party clients and explains them in a way that never mentions third-party clients they always explain like are we doing this for this reason (laughs) or for that or whatever it's like yeah but you see how it's doing this bad thing. Hey, Twitter, how you feel about this bad thing? That is it a side effect? You, you know, I, you, you can't say you're not aware of it. You know it's happening. Last time, I remember they were going to do this. And they said, "Oh, we have to think about it for a while. Like we'll delay it." And I was like, "How does that help? All you're doing is trying to wait until <laughs> about the, it for like three weeks." <laughs> yeah, we're waiting for the bad PR to die down and just do the same thing again. And it's like address it head on. I think I said this in the, uh, the Rectifs episode uh, where uh, Merlin and I were yelling about Twitter clients. Like, decide what you want. Do you want third party clients or do you not? If you don't want them get rid of them if you do want them support them but like uh, you know address the issue head on instead of just constantly saying other things other than you know people out there saying you're killing us and they're like we're really improving our api and blah 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 it's like, do, do, <laughs> what but just do you have to talk to those people you have to say you have to say we're sorry but that's just the way it is you should stop making third-party clients so you have to say we're sorry and we won't do this but instead saying well, actually, we're doing it for this reason. I don't care what reason you're doing it for. These are the effects that it's having, and you should address them head on, and they don't seem capable of doing that. I mean, I have a slightly different take on this. I mean, First of all, there was a great alternative take on Connected this week, um, led, I think, mostly by Mike, uh, where basically, like, basically saying, like, this kind of doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Uh, even if you use these apps, this kind of this kind of this none of these things are, are like should be deal killers for you as a user. Now, whether they are for the apps is a different story. Um, but you know, as the user, this is not the end of the world. Probably. Well, the DM one is kind of the end of the world. Now you got to use a different app for DMs. Yeah, that's that's kind of a, that's a bigger problem. But we it's it's easy for us as fans and users. Well, as users of Twitter. <laughs> uh, it's easy for us who who have been using third party Twitter apps forever to look at this and and to look at the continued slow jerkiness of Twitter towards third party apps since like 2012 uh, and and to to ascribe all of their actions to this motive of like Gruber's excellent analogy of like you know like somebody who's just trying to break up with their significant other and just being a jerk about it instead of just telling them. And that could be possible. That that could be what's happening here. But that's what he's saying. That's what it's like. Not that that's their motivation. Because again, if their motivation was to get rid of third party clients, they would just do it. It's it's like that. They're this is from the outside. It seems like that's what's happening. But like neglect or like just not caring or apathy or you know just equally uh, you know reasonable explanations. But from the outside, it just seems to us that they're just being a jerk and we're trying to figure out why you're trying to be a jerk either break up with us or don't right but uh, but i think ultimately though i think it is 
you know, a combination of ignorance and apathy and just like, because look at the way Twitter runs the rest of Twitter. You think they could have a coherent vision and solid plan that ran from 2012 until now about anything? Twitter doesn't even understand Twitter themselves. They don't even understand the basics of their own service. <laughs> they don't like they can be, they're barely keeping that company running. They're barely keeping the product usable. They're actively fighting against the product and its users all the time with tons of crazy mismanagement, horrible directions they go in and then abandon. Twitter sucks at running Twitter. So I think it's very very likely that the actual, you know, causes of their behavior here are not some gradual plan to kill third-party apps. I think they just are doing things that they see as reactionary to other forces, other, you know, API desires or other, you know, platform initiatives or God knows what else they call it that happen to hit third-party apps on the way. But I don't think anybody influential inside Twitter gives two seconds of thought to any third-party apps. So I think all of this is just like, it's just collateral damage from things inside that have nothing to do with them at all. But last time they did delay the thing, though. They were like, oh, people are angry. We'll, we'll, they immediately had a reply and said, I see lots of people are angry. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll sure that we'll give you 90 days notice. And they, that was an immediate reaction. So I think they are hearing it, but they're like kind of, you know, spindler style. You guys don't get that reference. They're hiding under their desk when the people get angry. And they're like, we realize something we're doing is making some people angry. And we don't really... <laughs> I don't I don't care about those people, but I don't like being yelled at. So if I just hide under my desk for a while and then like, wait, are they calm down now? Okay, let's go back to what we were doing because they don't care. And you're right. There's no there's no six year sustained plan to do anything at Twitter. But the frustrating thing, corporate communication wise, is you should at least address the issue people are mad at you about. Like every answer that I've seen from Twitter about the specific issue never says head on anything about how about like the the third party clients or whatever and so yeah it's it's just it's continued indecision and an indecision eventually becomes a decision and it becomes like oh in effect you're being a jerk to us for six years and eventually we'll go away uh but if if that is a goal of yours to get rid of third party clients you would have done it already because you were entirely empowered to do it so it's it's like it's not a goal and we don't like being yelled at but if we do it eventually as a side effect of a bunch of other flailings that we're doing, we're mostly okay with that. But we'll never tell you any of this. And every time you ask about it, we'll just say something else about why we're making these changes. And I bet the reasons they're making the changes are true. I bet they are changing to new API endpoints that are better and have better performance. And I bet they are phasing out the old API endpoints because they were badly implemented and inefficient. All of that is probably 100% true. But that's not what people want to hear. They want to pe- People want to hear... Yeah, but by doing this, you're having this effect. How do you feel about that? We don't like it. We're being hurt by it. Can you help us out? And last time they said, whoa, 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 don't yell at us. We'll we'll take the time to think about this. Now they're just like, okay, how about now? Can we just do the same thing now? (laughs) It's just, it's incredibly frustrating. Especially since, as many people pointed out, like, oh, they they don't want people to use third-party clients that, you know, or at least they don't care about third-party clients. Uh, First of all, most people don't use third-party clients, so it's not like this is a big problem. Oh, half our user base is using third-party clients. We can't control their user experience. No, it's not true. It's a vanishingly small percentage. And second of all, we want them to use our first-party clients. They're canned their first-party clients for the Mac, so it's, they just want people to use their website, I guess, which is their first-party client. iOS, you know, they still have the client. Anyway, they're 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 just making a mess, and, uh, you know, it, 
it's disappointing and uh, i'm glad that a lot of the features that they're canning or destroying don't affect me that much because i don't care about notifications i don't have any push stuff enabled uh but but dms would affect me and if i lose the ability to use twitter dms i will just stop using twitter dms and i'll just use something else for that use you know iMessage or whatever because i'm not going to use a dm api that has like a, a three to six minute lag every time i send a message it just makes me sad I mean, to be honest, it's probably for the best that I slowly wean myself off Twitter because I spend too much damn time on it. But it just makes me sad. And 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 again, it's, I guess, in a way, the same problem I have with the Google Duplex thing. Like, just call spade a spade. You know, hi, this is a computer calling you on behalf of Casey Liss. I'd like to schedule an appointment, please. Hi, I'm Twitter, and I want third-party clients to go away. So this is what we're doing. But they don't. If they want them to go away, they could make them go away. They're just sort of, it's benign, it's benign neglect. Well, I think the thing is they want them to go away, but they don't want to be the one with the smoking gun after it's over. If if they want to not make people mad at them, the six-year strategy of making people constantly mad at them is not like those same people. Like, those people aren't like, you know, if if you had to say this was a strategy, it would be a strategy of like barely appeasing them. But but as Marco pointed out, the idea that uh, that Twitter had any six-year strategy that was consistent is ridiculous anyway. So it's not like they're consciously barely appeasing them, but in effect, because they're so reactive when people yell at them, they are always walking that line between just making people incredibly angry at them all the time and then slightly appeasy and then angry and then appease them a little bit and then angry. And then it's just, and meanwhile, the the state of, uh, of third party Twitter clients just gets worse and worse over time. You know what we should do? We should just have all the white Nazis uh, use third-party apps, and then they will get priority support, and Twitter will do everything they want, oh, and, good uh, and then it, it, all this stuff will get fixed. Brilliant idea. That reminds me of the the, the, the hell banning feature that they just added. Do you know about the, the Twitter added hell banning? Do you know what hell banning is? Yeah, where it's like where you post and you don't realize no one's seeing your stuff, but no one's seeing your stuff. Yeah. So it's not actually quite that bad as that no one sees it, but like basically uh, they, certain... Uh, people's tweets do not appear in a thread like so if you're looking at a thread if anybody's looking at a thread and they participated in the thread certain people's tweets don't appear you know the bad people bot accounts nazis all that sort of stuff like that right which sounds like a good idea because it's like it's well it's you know it's been tried many times in, in forums and everything and it's kind of good if you don't like getting yelled at because what you're just hoping is that the people don't realize that they're hell banned that's the whole idea eventually in forums you people could realize but in twitter maybe they just think people are ignoring them and most of the time these are just like create a new account spew a bunch of invective get your account suspended repeat you know loop so no they'll never care right they're hell banned but the key with all these things is okay how does twitter decide who gets hell banned and the first place i saw anything having to do with hell banning on twitter was because some person's account was hell banned because they like told a nazi to go screw themselves right that was the person who was hell banned the person who told the nazi to go screw themselves because they used like screw or something or said like an insulting word um to be to the 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 whole point of of online trolls is they figure out how your system works and then they make 500 sock puppet accounts to report your account and get it hell banned and you don't notice and so like the concept of hell banning i'm not entirely against but the idea that twitter would correctly identify the accounts to actually ban versus having the system entirely gamed by the bad people to essentially hell ban uh you know everyone else who's who's against them like ugh, it's just it, there's so little that twitter could do these days where i where i think that the result of it will be an improvement to the service even when they ostensibly are doing more or less the right thing so anyway i'm assuming i'm hell banned right now sorry if you can't see my tweets 
We are sponsored this week by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com slash ATP. Enter offer code ATP at checkout to get 10% off. Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Squarespace makes it incredibly easy to make very professional-looking, highly functional websites. And whether your skill level is nothing or whether you're an expert, you can make a website with Squarespace that looks incredible, that has amazing built-in functionality from things like image galleries and cover pages and splash pages to blogs, portfolios, embedded videos, podcasts. You can even you can host an entire podcast in Squarespace if you want to. Uh, all of this is all available. Even if you want to have a built-in storefront to sell digital or physical goods, these are all included in every Squarespace plan. You can even buy domains there now if you want to do that. If you want to have everything in one spot and have it all be super easy to set up, Squarespace does domains now too. And you get all of that with intuitive, easy-to-use tools. Everything is drag-and-drop, live previewing. It's just an incredible technology stack of Squarespace that's so easy to use that you can do whatever you need to do in like an hour and you're done. And then you can move on to what you actually are doing your project for. Because you shouldn't be spending your time messing around with your website very much. You should just get it up there, get it done, get it nice, and then move on with your project. That's what Squarespace lets you do. So check it out today. Start a free trial. You can see for yourself. There's no credit card required. Start a free trial and see how good Squarespace can be for you at squarespace.com ATP. When you decide to sign up, make sure to head to squarespace.com ATP and use the offer code ATP to get 10% off your first purchase. That is squarespace.com ATP, offer code ATP. Thank you so much for Squarespace for sponsoring our show. What else happened at Google I.O.? We talked a whole lot about the Google Duplex thing. Was there anything else interesting that happened? What what else went on? Do we, well, first of all, let's preface that by saying, do any of a, are any of us qualified to even know what's relevant, let alone to have seen enough of it to talk about it, let alone to talk about it, you know, well? I watched it. I did my homework. I assume you two didn't. No, nope. of course not. Why would I, I already gave 14 minutes of my life for that, and that was too many. Yeah, it was pretty long. Uh, yeah, there's some there's some downtime sections there, but it's good to see the whole thing to, you know, See how how Google is presenting its its face to the world. Um, that middle section on Duplex really was the important part, though. Yeah, but yeah, there's just a few odds and ends here. Uh, one of them is about that uh, Google is now on the bandwagon with their assistant, where they have a like what do they call it? Uh, continued conversation where you don't have to say "Hey Dingus" in front of every single command. You say "Hey Dingus" and then a command, and then it's still listening to you for a little period of time. So, and you know, or, or I think we talked about that with Amazon a couple months ago, uh, and then now Google uh, has got it. I'm sure Apple will have it in like six to eight years, so it'll be fine. <laughs> um, compound commands was something that they demoed, um, and we talked about that as well, of being able to, you know, say, play the song and turn the volume up, which is something that, that HomePod can already do, in, at least in the domain of, uh, of music. Google was showing off particular how they handle uh, interesting compounds. This was, this was a good demo of where uh, it seems like an easy problem because you just look for like an and or something, and then you know where... Uh, to split the thing up, but they showed two commands that if you just blindly split on and, it would get the wrong answer. So it has to it has to understand the sentences and understand this is part one of the command and this is the second command as opposed to a compound command that is applying to two things that are anded in it. So I thought that was neat. Um, and like I said, that's an area where I think uh, a HomePod actually can do that in the limited domain of music, although probably not as uh, sophisticated as, uh, as Google Assistant can do. Um, there was pretty please mode, which this is starting to get into Google's sort of lifestyle 
part where they're trying to... This is interesting. Uh, Apple does this a little bit, but and Nintendo does it a little bit too. This is the first time I'd really seen Google leaning on this. The idea that we make uh, electronics and software and servers, uh, and we recognize that sometimes people use our products more than they want to. I don't know how else to phrase that. Like, we make things... And we give them to you, and you can use them, but sometimes you feel bad like you're using them too much. I'm on my phone too much. I spend too long browsing the web, right? You know, whatever it may be. Although, I would imagine that, like, for the audio things, no one is like, this is a great stereo system, but we also have a feature just in case you feel guilty for listening to too much music. Every once in a while, our stereo will come on and say, you've been listening to music for about an hour. Are you sure you don't want to stop and go outside? That doesn't happen with stereo systems for the most part. But for... Products like like a lot of the products that Google and Apple and lots of other uh, tech companies make, that is a common feature. Nintendo's consoles for a little while now have said, you've been playing games for two hours. Maybe you should get up and stretch or go outside because the perception is that if you play games for two hours, maybe you should take a break. But no one wants a stereo that says you've been listening to music for two hours. Maybe you should take a break. Anyway, Google has a whole wing of their products now that's like, you seem like you've been using your phone a lot. Maybe you should... Do something else for a little while. And uh, they call this digital well-being. Um, and there's another feature about that, that I'll get to in a second. But the, the pretty please mode is similar to that in that say you are uh, someone who has a bunch of cylinders in your house like all of us do. And you have kids like all of us do. And the kids talk to the cylinders. There is this, I'm not going to say alarmist parenting. You know, the, the Parents are alarmed about many things. Oh, my goodness. What's <laughs> happening to our children? Uh Something is different in my children's life than was in my life. Are we accidentally teaching our children something bad? Are, our are we losing our children? So this one is, are we teaching our children to be rude by having them order around our cylinders? Like, my child is mean when, when it talks to my cylinder and demands that the cylinder do things, right? I think that's a little silly because if your child is a jerk, it's not the fault of the cylinder probably. Uh, but, you know, parents have concerns and want to deal with it. And so pretty please mode is a mode in which your cylinder... I don't know if it requires, but it really wants you to ask it to do something in a nice way. And when you do ask it in a nice way by saying please or whatever, uh, the cylinder acknowledges that you've done that and say, and thank you for asking so nicely, right? I don't know if it's a jerk about it and says, ah, 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 you didn't say Simon says. But the idea is that our products are too efficient and little kids can use them and maybe little kids are being bossy. So let's change our product to... Make it worse, but make it so the kids learn politeness. Which, as a parent, I'm going to say, it, if your cylinder could help my kid learn to be more polite, I'm not going to argue with that. But I think adults would not particularly like that. I wonder if it only works for kids because the, the Google cylinders can't identify different voices. Um, and on the other digital well-being thing was like, say it's nighttime and it seems like you're on your phone a lot. Digital well-being has a, has a, a wind-down feature that you can you can tell it to say, if it's like 11 p.m. and I'm still on my phone, phone, please try to encourage me to go to bed. So the new version of Android will transition the entire UI to black and white to try to make the phone less engaging to you. And it will remind you to go to bed. And I love the idea of taking all the color out of your phone, like transitioning your phone to black. <laughs> I'll be like, haha, you fool. I used a monochrome Mac for many years. This is not less appealing to me. <laughs> you know how many hours I spent staring at a monochrome screen? Not even grayscale. It's just black pixels and white pixels. It wasn't less engaging. You couldn't get me off that thing. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so like, Google's literally 
it has a feature to make its products worse to encourage you to stop using them. Um, and it sounds absurd, but this is a thing I think people want because I think, well, I talked about this on directives, like self-hacks. Uh, sometimes the way you can accomplish a goal, like I wish I used my phone less, it's not by remembering to use your phone less, but by in your moments of in your moments of clarity and rationality where you realize you want to use your phone less, sabotage your own life in a way that will either remind you to use your phone less or force you to lose your use your phone less. Like self hacks, I need to make this change in my life because if I don't, willpower alone won't cause me to do this. Like like I said on the show, like not having ice cream in the house if you're trying not to eat ice cream. You could just not eat ice cream, but it's much easier to not eat ice cream when it's not in the house. So when you when you're in the mindset, I really want to do this. When you're at the store, don't buy the ice cream because you know future you will thank you for that because you're like you know what if there was ice cream in the house i would eat it now but thankfully before i had the presence of mind to hack myself so i suppose when the wind down feature comes on you'd be like oh but i still want to use my phone and but now it'll be like oh but my phone is getting annoying and i should really go to bed anyway just giving you that little extra nudge so i wouldn't be surprised to see apple introducing features like this because as absurd as they sound i think they're features that people might actually like and use i don't know would would either of you would either of you ever configure one of your electronics to tell you to stop using it? No, I think I would. Um, I, I, I don't do the best with putting my phone down or away in times when it shouldn't be in my hand. And so like I, I've, I've done a lot of these self hacks with varying degrees of success. Uh, lately I've been leaving my phone on a different floor of the house. So when I think, Oh, I wonder you know, if so and so was in such and such TV show, like it doesn't matter. I don't need to look that you up. You should ask your and, cylinder; it knows. Well, and actually, yeah, now I can ask the cylinder. But in, I'm just trying to think of a stupid example. And so I've been leaving the phone on on the wrong floor, if you will. Additionally, I've had Do Not Disturb come on by five in the evening. I used to have it come on at ten, which is about when I go to bed, except on Wednesdays. Hi, fellas. Uh, and so <laughs> I've moved it up to five in the evening, uh, such that basically once I'm home from work, I really won't be bothered unless somebody really wants to get a hold of me. Um, and so I've been doing little things like that. So I think I would probably turn on these sorts of, of, of warnings or reminders or what have you, you know, I, I wouldn't, and like, uh, do, do not disturb while driving. I think that's another good example. I have that on. And sometimes when I'm at a stoplight, I tell it, shut up and go away. But sometimes I see it and I'm like, you know what? I really should not do the thing I'm trying to do right now. So I would do it, but that's just me. What do you think about the pretty please cylinder thing? If you could have put your cylinder into a mode that requires you to be nice to it. So given that we have a three and a half year old in the house and he, I like to think of him as pretty polite. I, I, you know, he's my perfect little precious angel. He does no wrong. Uh, no, I, I think anything we could do to encourage consistency on please and thank you would be helpful. And I don't really actually care if he says please or thank you to to Alexa, but um, I do care that he says please and thank you to people. And I don't think it's useful to try to explain to him, no, 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 that's not really a person. So you don't have to worry about them. But when you're talking to mommy or daddy or other people, you do need to say please and thank you. And so I, w- I have been meaning to, to turn this on, but I haven't gotten around to doing it yet. But I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board with it. Marco, you're going to say please and thank you to your cylinders? No. See, if I think of it from the kid angle, the, the again, I, parents will take anything they can get to help, you know, help help along with parenting. Like you said, if it's going to make my kid more polite, great. But there is another aspect of 
parenting a child and and you know in a house full of cylinders uh you know as preparing them for their future life and essentially making the distinction between something that's a person and something that's a not a person and i get that like the habits that you build on the non-person can transfer to the person but on the other hand efficiently navigating a world of uh computer agents and stuff is a skill and it's not particularly efficient to pretend the computer is a person right especially for very young kids like i guess it's a fun thing to do and you know kids believe lots of magical things but at a certain point the skill that you want your kid to have transitions from learn to be nice to inanimate objects to learn to efficiently use you know computers to accomplish tasks because that will be part of your life and even perhaps to the fact of learn to identify when it's not a computer when it's not a person on the other end of the phone line or whatever so that you can switch modes essentially and switch into you know you know uh, last week's show was it uh playing the video game uh playing it like a video game yeah pl- playing it like a video game because that's that's a skill you should have like you should understand how these systems work you should know that they exist and you should treat them it's not about being nice or not nice but it's about uh, you know doing the having the appropriate interactions with them because the appropriate interactions like like what's next like you know put please in your google queries of course you're not because that's not efficient and you know google is not a person it's just that if you start making it sound a little bit like a person you know i'm not saying be abusive i think that was when the hell did that come up i think that was uh irl talk if you should be mean to your robot butler oh yeah yeah yep 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 right like so there there is a crossover point where you actually are training people to be terrible to humans but i think the voice is not quite at that crossover point i don't know i have to think about it some more i would like to try it just to see what like what the failure modes are and if it is really mean to you and won't do what you said because you didn't say please because people do like positive reinforcement and if you say please and it's nice to you back that actually could make the product feel better to people because they're like oh my cylinder was nice to me right it's still it's already kind of nice it's it you know it, it sets my timers and tells me about stuff that i ask and is generally pleasant when it does it but if it if it congratulated me on being polite i think i would say oh i feel better about that even though i know you're just a computer program so that that could actually be a user benefit uh not so much changing my behavior as uh making me feel better each time i use it i totally hear you about the teaching the kids the difference between computers and not computers but at three and a half i don't think that that's the the battle i want to fight the battle i want to fight at three and a half is say please and thank you at i don't know five or seven i don't know what the appropriate age is i will absolutely fight the battle of, or not fight the battle but you know explain you don't really need to say please to a thing that doesn't exist or that's not you know a human but you should say please to to other people i i do need to 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 navigate that i agree with you i just don't think that for my particular family at our particular at this particular stage in in our lives i don't think declan needs to be worrying about the distinction between the two and maybe i'm wrong i don't know but that's the way i look at it and also like i said if you know if it it, it really depends on your kids like we, we just had a sleepover party here with a bunch of uh 10 and 11 year old girls in the house and they love talking to cylinders and asking them to play music and they're all talking at once and they're all yelling over each other and they're all excited <laughs> about what they can do and i you know i i can say i heard everything they said you couldn't help but hear them they're very loud it's a small house um <laughs> and they were never mean to the cylinders they were excited about the cylinders they laugh when the cylinder would make a mistake uh i did eventually convince them i had to force them i went to them and nudge them because they were they were playing music on the google home mini and the home pod is like five feet away and i'm like come on people come on 
Not like they're cranking the volume on the Google. The Google Mini is the size of like a softball, right? And the HomePod sitting there going like, I have 20 speakers that fire in a million directions that can adjust to the room shape. And they're like, ah, we'll play it. So I got them to change and talk to the HomePod. Uh, and they get confused about the trigger words a lot, which is, you know, they don't care about these distinctions. They just want the stuff to happen. Sometimes they'd both be playing at the same time or slightly offset, which was, you know, it was a little bit of a mess. Anyway, they were never mean. They were never mean to the cylinders. They never got mad at them. They never, you know, were, were bossy or whatever. And so I feel like if it's kind of like if your kid was being bossy to their teddy bear, it's not the teddy bear's fault. There's no alteration in the teddy bear's demeanor or appearance that will change your child from yelling at it. The kid's being bossy to the teddy bear as a sign that something else is wrong. Why is your kid angry? I mean, you know, whatever, like whatever the, the problem is, it's probably not the teddy bear. So if your kid is yelling at their cylinder, changing the cylinder to ask them to be polite is not is addressing the symptom and not the root problem, I would say. All right. Uh, we have probably half an hour to an hour left of the show. So I think we can we still have time possibly to bring up the next topic. Let's talk about keyboards, Marco. There's a class action lawsuit, <laughs> and apparently one of you wants to talk about it, and that is not me. I didn't put it in here, so it's, it must be John. I was just open to say that, you know, Apple gets class action lawsuits filed against it all the time. They usually are BS. They go nowhere. Class action lawsuits are generally scams because the only people who tend to make any real money out of them are the lawyers. Usually they're not news. I'm still not sure this one is news. Uh, but it happens to be on a topic that I talk about a lot, so I suppose that's why that's why it's in here. Um, but yeah, there there has been a class action lawsuit filed in California um, that alleges that so it's regarding the the keyboards in the 12 inch MacBook and uh, 2016 forward MacBook Pros that I love to bag on so much because they are highly controversial in feel and attributes, um, and I fall on the they suck side of that controversy. But of course, they're also fairly unreliable uh, compared to the previous one. So anyway, this lawsuit alleges not only that they are unreliable and that Apple is refusing to fix them under warranty the way they should, but also that that Apple knowingly put them in the MacBook Pros after knowing after the 2015 12-inch uh, MacBook that basically it's alleging they knew they were defective and put them in the other laptops and have been continuing to sell them anyway, even knowing that they would fail at a high rate and be defective. And that's honestly plausible. Uh, you know, if you look at the sequence of events, I, I've been saying this for a long time now. You know, Apple released the 12-inch MacBook. It had the butterfly keyboard for the first time. And those failed at a very high rate, seemingly, you know, anecdotally. And, and you know, you can say this is all anecdotes and everything, but th- that's that's all we have. Apple doesn't reveal these numbers. So it's, it's all we have is you can, you know, ask around, you can hear on Twitter or stuff like that. Um, and it did seem like right from the start there was a, a seemingly unusually high failure rate on those keyboards, even the 12-inch. And this was a year and a half before the, the MacBook Pros shipped with them. So anyway, this lawsuit is alleging that Apple knew they were you know, higher than usual failing rates and shipped them in all their computers anyway. And that does seem plausible. Apple might have known. We're probably never going to know. This is probably never going to reach a court. Um, and Apple's probably never going to have any kind of like testimony put on the record. Chances are it's either going to fizzle out or it's going to settle for some you know thing that makes the lawyers a lot of money and makes nothing for any of the people who have these laptops. Um, so chances are this will go nowhere. But I think it is noteworthy that it has reached this point. This is not the first time this has happened. Apple 
has had class actions in the past for various product flaws, some of them valid, most of them not. Um, so again, it's hard to know how newsworthy this is or how valid this is or if this will actually change anything at all. But it is at least noteworthy that it does seem to be an actual problem. What they're alleging is both pretty horrible on Apple's part and also kind of plausible. Um, so, you know, it, it's worth, you know, looking back on in a year and seeing where it ended up. But it's probably not it's probably not going to have like, you know, breaking news all the time. So the reason I put it in here and I should have actually put that uh, the petition. I think there was a petition online petition uh, change.org online petition to I don't know, forget what they were asking. Probably something similar like uh, extend warranty repairs and fix your keyboards or whatever. The uh, and class action lawsuit because lots of people send these stuff. Hey, did you hear about this class action lawsuit? Did you sign this petition? Can you can you uh, amplify this? Can you retweet it? Can you send it to all your people? So they will sign the petition, and so they will join the the yeah, learn about the class action lawsuit. Um, and I wanted to put them in here to explain basically why I tend not to do that. And I think Marco did explained it well. Um, class action lawsuits are not, you know, just because it's a class action lawsuit doesn't mean anything. You can sue anyone for anything, right? Doesn't mean you're going to succeed, or doesn't mean that even if they you, if you get a big settlement, doesn't mean that you were right. It just means that lawyers smell money. So yes, the problem, this particular <laughs> problem, like so many problems before it, has raised to the level where lawyers know that they can extract lawyers think and are probably right that they can extract money from apple over it which says nothing about the validity of the issue the, you know we've discussed the validity of the issue at length and none of it you know I, I, my opinion of the validity of the issue is not changed by the, the filing of the lawsuit similarly online petitions are an interesting signal to say you know is, is there enough are people worked up enough about this to click a couple buttons on a web page that's a pretty low bar like i've seen online petitions with five to ten to a hundred times as many signatures uh for a minor change in a video game so you know like just because people are willing to click on a, a on a web page and sign a quote-unquote sign a petition doesn't really mean anything about the importance severity or correctness of an issue uh but it's another signal it, it shows that the bad publicity about this particular issue has reached the stage where someone decided to make a petition and a lot of people uh signed it uh and again uh you know it's it, it doesn't mean that the issue is valid because lots of people have signed lots of petitions about lots of things related to apple over the years but uh it does mean that this particular issue which we all think has some validity is getting traction uh, among you know among more people than just a slightly bigger circle than just apple podcasters i suppose um and, you know, all this signal, like, it's a signal to us and to know how things are progressing, but it's also a signal to Apple. And I think Apple t also has a similar opinion of this. Class action lawsuits, we get sued all the time. Uh, yeah, the, Some Apple lawyer should come on and say, how many times a year does Apple get sued? It's probably like seven times a second or something. It's like how fast they sell iPhones. Like, people love to sue companies with a lot of money. Those are the, those are the best people to sue because that's where the money is, right? Uh, it's just a small input into their system. I think the class action lawsuit is a slightly bigger signal to Apple than the online petition, which Apple, I'm sure, is used to entirely ignoring. But they're both signals. Uh, and so if Apple wants to know how annoyed people are about the keyboard, valid or invalid, they can look at those signals and find out. But yeah, it's not uh, class action lawsuits. It, you know, it's it's hard for me to get worked up about any of these things, but class action lawsuits in particular bother me by their nature for the reasons that, that Marco said that like. It promises like justice, uh, but it feels bad to a lot of people that the justice accrues in a very small measure to everyone in the class. So great, great, you get a twelve dollar, 
check, right? Uh, but the three lawyers involved become multimillionaires. And <laughs> like, it just, it seems unfair. It's like one of those things where people are like, you did so little work and made so much money. You shot on a movie for three days and you made $20 million. That seems so unfair. But at least movie stars, you understand like, well, people really want to see this person. But no one knows or cares who the lawyers are in a class action lawsuit. And the fact that they get so much money out of it disproportionately to the people who are part of the class, it just doesn't leave a good taste in a lot of people's mouths. But anyway, people just want to see Apple lose a lawsuit or they want to get their $12 check and, and feel there's justice involved. And, and finally, on this topic, as I think Marco pointed out in a tweet and many people have pointed out, like, we all kind of know how this is going to go down. Like, unless something dramatic happens, unless like some Apple employee comes out and is like a whistleblower and says, yes, Apple knew they were defective, you know, unless something very dramatic happens, it's going to happen the way we always knew it was going to happen and that Apple will probably do something in their future laptops to have a different keyboard. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be better, but you know, they'll do something different, right? Just like they did something different with the antennas on their phones eventually. Uh, and like many other hardware issues they've had, they'll probably do a repair extension program, uh, for these things and it may or may not be a good repair extension that may or may not leave a big like gap in the, the poor suckers who bought them at the wrong time and will never be covered uh and they'll move on with you know they'll live and learn right so i don't you know i don't think even if this class action lawsuit was wildly successful they're not going to say refunds for everybody who got who bought a macbook pro with this keyboard or you get a you can trade it in for a new computer or whatever like we we know how this is going to turn out with or without the class action lawsuit so we're all just kind of like waiting out this the uh, the the reliability of uh, issues of this keyboard and hoping that the next one is better. Yeah, and and the sad thing is, like like I've I've wanted like, like for a while now, I've wanted to like start a campaign like to to announce to people on a regular basis, you know, here on Twitter, like all Apple knows about officially, all that's hitting them like where it counts, which is their data and their wallet is when they're brought in for warranty repair, when Apple has to foot the bill for replacing an entire top case for one dead key. So I've been wanting for a while to encourage people, if you have one that, that has like a bad key, bring it in and make them replace it. You know, and so that, that way, like you are counted because there's a whole lot of people out there who have brought them in, who have been getting them replaced. There's also a whole lot of people out there who have flaky keys and just don't bring them in because it's a huge pain. And the reason I haven't encouraged people to do that, and the reason I keep like convincing myself to to not announce this everywhere, is because I know in reality I wouldn't bring it in if that was my only laptop or my my main laptop because it is a pain. It's 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 so disruptive to bring in your computer to Apple, give them a stupid account with a stupid password so they can log in and do whatever they need and look at all your data. You should never, ever, ever have to give your password to anybody in this day and age. I don't know, I don't know why they still insist on that, but okay. Uh, you know, it's a pain to be without your computer. The reason, like, if you're buying a, a you know, $1,500 plus laptop, chances are you need it for something in your life and chances are you need it regularly and especially if it's your only computer it's quite an, an intrusion to go without it i mean look at how long i tolerated my, my terrible image retention on my last imac because i didn't want to go without my main computer for a week which is almost what it took when i finally did do it on like in like the last week of the warranty <laughs> and this is another reason why like when people say like when there is a, a flaw with with an apple product and and 
a lot of times the defenders of this product will will say, "Well, just bring it in, get it serviced. You know, just bring it in, just bring it in." And it's like that's not that's not actually a good answer. That's actually like because most Apple products that I have bought, I have never needed to bring in for service. Most products of any type that I have bought, I have never needed to bring in for service. Bringing things in for service is uh, is hugely invasive and 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 costly f- to a lot of people in various ways. The fact that it can be fixed in service is not a great excuse. <laughs> like that. So anyway, I totally get why people would be hesitant to bring in their computers for service, especially if the first time they bring them in, they get the runaround from, from the genius on the other side after the pain in the ass of making the appointment, and then somebody eventually tells them, uh, well, this is user damage because you caused the dust to get out of that keycap. Like, what happened to Stephen Hackett? I get so much why nobody wants to bring in their laptops but honestly, if you can bring it in, if it's not a big pain for you, bring in any broken butterfly keyboard laptop that you have and make them service under warranty. Because if you want this problem to actually be fixed, we need to hit them where it counts. They don't give two craps about 16,000 signatures on a petition. They don't give two craps about people like me complaining on Twitter. They do give a number of craps about their spreadsheet. And so... You know, if you have one of these keyboards, again, if, if this is affecting you, if you can bring it in for service while it's under warranty and make them replace it, please do. However, if that's a huge imposition on you, I totally understand. <laughs> and I'd not, like, so I'm not, I'm not like saying you have to do it, but if you can do it, do it. You can do the old people thing. I'm thinking of the people who, uh, and this will start happening uh, more and more, I assume, who uh, go in with a broken key and their thing is out of warranty and they find out to fix their broken key, it's $400. Now they have to pay out of pocket. You may or may not be able to yell and scream and make Apple, you know, give you a better deal or do it under warranty. This is assuming there's no warranty extension program by now. Uh, but one thing you can do, regardless of whether you choose to have the repair is go back home and write a long, sad letter to Apple to say, Dear Tim, yeah. dear Apple, I've used your products for years and blah, 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 blah. And then I went in and one key broke and it's disappointing enough that the key broke. But then when I learned to fix the keyboard, they have to replace the whole top of the computer. It's going to cost me $400. This computer is only a year old or whatever, you know, like, like one of those letters. And I mean, like an actual physical letter, but it even could be an email taking the time. And this is a good outlet for your anger too. with like the, the company, regardless of whether you actually paid it. Say you, you can say you didn't pay it or you can say you did pay it and it was a big hardship and you're really disappointed and you're never going to buy Apple products again or whatever. Uh, but kind of like, uh, you know, say with, uh, you know, political campaigns that a bunch of automated signatures is weighed less than a real signature is weighed less than a real handwritten letter, you know, like the sort of hierarchy of how much time did the person who sent this to me spend on it? And, how does that represent how passionately they feel about it? And how many more people do I multiply this by to know that for every one handwritten letter we get, there's 10 people behind the scenes who are, couldn't be bothered to write a letter. I'd, I remember my mother doing the same thing when I got my uh, Mac SE 30. And speaking of young hearing, I think I've told this story before the power supply made a high pitched whine that only I could hear because I was like, you know, 12 and had really good hearing. And the adults at the repair center, this was before Apple source, the adults at the repair center said this thing isn't making any noise and i felt like i was being gaslighted and i was like but it's making this terrible high-pitched screaming noise how can you not hear it and we went back and forth and the the repair center said they did something and gave it back and it was just as bad or worse and 
you know and so it was like we it was all under warranty so we weren't paying any money for it but it went back and forth to the the, the uh authorized apple reseller as they were known in those days and still are i assume uh back and forth lots of times and eventually my mother wrote a handwritten letter to apple saying we've used your computers for years my son is really into your computers we've tr- been trying to get this repaired and we haven't had any success and they're kind of giving us the runaround and blah 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 eventually we ended up finding a different uh repair center that did replace the power supply with a new one that didn't make the noise but that type of letter i imagine goes uh, a lot farther than a you know a signature or a participation in a class action lawsuit or anything like that obviously marco's right the thing that goes the farthest is making apple pay their own money out of pocket for the repair because that really hits them where it hurts but if you can't do that like for instance you're out of warranty and apple's not going to pay for it and neither are you because Honestly, uh, I would have serious doubts about paying $500 to repair a key on an out-of-warranty laptop that's probably going to have that same key go bad on the new keyboard because the new keyboard is the same as the old keyboard. I would really think twice about that. Write an angry, long letter. You know, you can be polite. You know, you could say, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. However you want to do it, I think they will wait. I think they will wait that a lot more than you clicking on that online petition. We are sponsored this week by Betterment. Rethink what your money can do. Visit Betterment.com slash ATP for more information. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor designed to help improve customers' long-term returns and lower your taxes for retirement planning, building wealth, and your other financial goals. Betterment takes advanced investment strategies and uses technology to deliver them to more than 300,000 customers. And all of this is with low fees. At Betterment, Hidden costs and high fees are nowhere to be found. No matter who you are or how much money you invest, you get everything for one low, transparent management fee. And as a fiduciary, they make recommendations that are in their client's best interests. They are not incentivized to recommend certain funds, and they don't have their own investment products to sell you. And Betterment also offers personalized advice and a suite of easy-to-use, nicely designed tools to help you know whether you're on track to hit your investing goals or get the retirement that you want. And when you need help and when you need assistance, their tools and their guidance can help get you on track. And Betterment brings you all this with incredibly low fees. There's only a 0.25% annual fee that includes unlimited messaging access to their team of licensed financial experts. If you have a more complex situation, Betterment Premium gives you unlimited phone call access to their team of certified financial planners for only 0.4% annually. Investing involves risk. Listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash ATP. That's Betterment.com slash ATP. Betterment. Rethink what your money can do. Uh, I don't know anything about the Surface Hub 2 other than that the brief thing I read made it seem like a smart board to me. So what's this about? And can somebody fill in as chief summarizer in chief? John? Did you even look at this, Marco? Yeah, I tweeted about it. Everyone got mad at me. Oh, all right. Anyway, um, <laughs> Wait, what so, was your tweet? Why did everyone get mad? Um, I basically said, like, I was kind of, you know, snarkily saying that, like, you know, Apple and Apple's defenders have basically been advancing the argument seemingly, you know, e- either by words in the case of the outsiders or by inaction in the case of Apple, uh, that the Mac is kind of done and complete and there's nowhere else for the Mac to go. Might as well just, it's kind of in maintenance mode and. We can occasionally make good new hardware to make to make more money, but you know we don't really need to advance the OS meaningfully in, in any significant direction. Um, and then Microsoft comes into crazy stuff like this. Like Microsoft has like the the entire Surface line has been you know very ambitious 
hardware and software directions, um, ambitious new takes on on what a computer can and should be, what it can do, um, blurring the lines between computers and tablets and things like that. You know, Microsoft is doing tons of crazy experimentation. And yeah, most of it is weird and most of it doesn't go anywhere. And 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 people also try to argue like, well, look at their sales numbers. They don't sell very many. Like, I don't give two craps about anyone's sales numbers uh, that when I'm discussing what's a good product and what isn't. Um, so there, there's lots of like resistance to me saying stuff like this. But basically, like, you know, I think I, I applaud Microsoft for trying things like this because there's this perception in in our community that like, the PC, and by that I also include the Mac in the category of things that are PC and PC-like, there's this perception that the PC is just dead, or it's the past, or it's done, it's complete. And that's just so short-sighted and ignorant. We in technology always want things that come along that are new to, quote, kill the old things, and the old things are dead. And, and in reality, that hardly ever happens. In, in reality, most technology that comes out is additive to what came before it like when you know phones came out we didn't all just move everything we did to phones we use phones a lot but we also still use computers and you know when tablets came out tablets didn't kill phones we just use tablets and phones and computers <laughs> and now we have smart watches and smart cylinders when the smartwatch was first like kind of in its early rumblings everyone's like oh this is gonna kill the phone everything's gonna move to your wrist Guess what? It hasn't, uh, and there's no sign of that happening anytime soon. Um, and so, guess what? We still use we use smartwatches and phones and tablets and computers and cylinders. Now we're talking about AR. <laughs> AR is going to replace everything with all this magic hardware that doesn't exist yet. But it's gonna it's gonna replace everything with all these killer apps we can't think of. It's gonna replace your phone and it's gonna replace your computer. You're gonna be just standing there, sitting in front of a blank wall in your cubicle and moving things through the air. And that might happen, but what's more likely to happen is that it's gonna come out and we're gonna buy AR glasses and watches and cylinders and tablets and phones and PCs. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, all of this is a long way of saying uh, that I think that the, the 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 world of PCs and Macs has gone through a period over the last you know five to ten years of creative rethinking by Microsoft and negligent underinvestment by Apple, and that makes me sad because I don't want to use Windows, I don't want to use PCs. I still want to keep using Macs and Mac OS. It does seem like maybe this is turning around on the hardware side recently. Uh, not so much on the software side, unfortunately, but maybe on the hardware side, we're, we're getting some movement here. You know, the iMac Pro is excellent. The Mac Pro is coming. But, you know, the laptops are kind of a mess. The touch bar seemed like their one experiment in this area, and it wasn't very good. And it hasn't gone anywhere since it launched two years ago. So basically, my position on, on the surface whatever this is called the surface smart board is this is a thing i'm never going to see in real life it's a thing i'm never going to use it's a thing that very few people will ever see or use in real life however gotta give microsoft credit they are trying to advance the pc in a way that seemingly no one else is so even though it's crazy and even though it's probably not going to go anywhere and even though their sales numbers are nothing to to pay attention to still they are trying to move the PC forward. And the reality is most of us still use PCs. 
to do most of our work most of the time. So it benefits all of society that someone is trying to move these things forward. And it sh- unfortunately, I, it, Apple's not really, they're, they're, or they're not doing enough. If they are, if they, whatever they are trying, it isn't enough. So I, I'm glad someone is. I wish everyone was. Uh, but ultimately, the PC and PC-like things are a part of our life. They are still a part of our life. They will be a part of our life for the foreseeable future. And good job, Microsoft, for trying to advance them. Yeah, when I look at this, I knew I knew what your take would be, and we've are, we've all talked about this before about how Microsoft's trying all sorts of interesting things. I think we talked about the oh, goddamn Surface Book Pro, Surface Studio. I cannot remember their damn names. The Studio was the iMac thing with the knob. The Book Pro is the detachable laptop tablet thing. I think. Which one's the MacBook Air with the carpet keyboard? Uh, <laughs> I, I have no idea. I see is it in the picture just, here. I just don't know. What that it's just, uh, that's just a Surface, isn't it? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Is it the Surface Air? Maybe I don't. Is that a thing? <laughs> but uh, but like with, with all these things, like it, it, to varying degrees, sometimes like the, the one that looks like a big iMac, it's like that's the thing that Apple. Uh, I would have liked to have seen from Apple, but for this particular one, and for people to know what we're talking about, it's called the. Uh, we'll put the link. Uh, it's called the uh, Surface Hub. Uh, 2. Surface Hub Two, which means there was a Surface Hub One that I've probably already forgotten about if I knew about it at all. Well, do you remember what the original Surface was? Uh, yeah, the big table thing. I know. Yep. I remember that. <laughs> Um, so these things are very big, like the size of a television set, uh, oriented vertically in most of the things I see, although they do rotate, uh, like, like a big TV, like, a I don't know, 40 something inch TV. I don't know how big yeah, they are, it looks like a 42 inch TV rotated in, into portrait orientation. Right. And on it, uh, is running some variant of windows, like everything else that Microsoft does. And it's a touchscreen and it has a camera on it. I assume that's what that thing is. It looks like the old Apple eyesight. It's like a cylinder. It's like, you couldn't build that into the display anyway. Um, and use it as a touchscreen. You can gang together multiple ones that have them, or you can connect all four of them and show an image across all four. And they always show it all sort of in the wall of an office where you can project from your little laptopy thing onto the big screen, and people can walk up to the screen and scroll and point to things and manipulate it on the screen with your two hands. And it's, it's really big. Like, it's not... The resolution is... It's only like a 4K TV, so it's not... If you get close to it, I'm sure you can see big, chunky pixels and stuff. But it's more of like a, a large display-type device. And unlike the thing that looks like an iMac, when I see something like this... I think it's not so much uh, showing that they're trying new things in the PC space. It's more like they're trying new things in the tablet space. So if Apple was going to do something like this, like not just Apple, I think the appropriate appropriate, uh, software for this kind of hardware is more like iOS in that you want something like this to behave like an appliance. You want it to have the less complicated, more reliable, more sort of you know, less flexible, but more appliance-like operating system. And in Apple's ecosystem, that's iOS. Uh, No one wants to see a big setup of these displays with some weird Windows update message popped up in the corner, which I see all the time. Or worse yet, a blue (laughs) screen. But, you know, just sort of the the sort of Windows desktop PC nags about things that you have to do, right? And I suppose that dialogue can come up on iOS as well. But, like, this should be a really big iPad. Uh, I mean, we saw that with... uh, panic software their great status board application that they uh, eventually gave up on after some struggles with apple they had a big television set showing the output of an ios device showing status board and this is just wasn't even a touch screen it wasn't for input it was purely an output device just to have a big screen in their office showing them cool graphs of information that's relevant to the company that they updated from an ios app that they wrote using a clever api right 
that looks like a lot what this is without, without the touching. This is adding the input aspect. If I wanted to have a gigantic iPad that I could swipe around on to show people things, you could gang together multiple ones of them, that's this. And I don't know if it's a great idea. Maybe it's a terrible idea. Maybe no one will buy them or whatever. But this is a case where Apple is actually better positioned than Microsoft to field a product like this if it turns out that people want a product like this. Now, in this particular case, I'm going to guess that there's not a lot of market for this. Even if it is great at fulfilling its need and every company in the United States has this, there are far fewer companies than there are people. And so this would be, you know, sort of an enterprise type sale, which, you know, is Microsoft's bread and butter these days. So maybe it'll, it'll, it's a product that'll work for them. But, you know, I, it's, it's not just about, oh, Apple's not being daring enough by trying things with the Mac. Apple's not being daring enough by trying things with the iPad either. I think they're probably being appropriately daring <laughs> with the iPhone. But for, for both the iPad and the Mac, the Mac seems not to be advancing just because they're like, you know, it's less prioritized and they're too cautious. But then the iPad, as many, many people have pointed out over many, many years, that's not advancing either. And that's supposed to be the the platform Apple cares about, like the OS platform that Apple cares about. Obviously, it's not the hardware form factor that Apple cares about as much, but it's the same OS as the phone. And so it feels like a shame that Apple isn't making... It took them so long to make a bigger iPad, and I still think they should make an even bigger one. Here's a huge iPad. And no, you don't carry a 40-inch iPad around. It's ridiculous. But it's mounted on the wall, and it can run iOS, and you could do lots of cool things with it. And then Pan can bring back status board, and everything would be good. I don't know, man. It I, I simultaneously can't get too excited about this because, as one of you just said, I don't think I'll ever see it in my entire life. But I also respect, like Marco was saying, that at least Microsoft's throwing something at the wall and seeing if it sticks, which is weird because I think the 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 line that, that an Apple fan should toe is, oh, they should just have an opinion and, and figure it out once and for all and go with it and not throw a bunch of stuff against the wall. But I think we're, we're, we're so thirsty for Apple to do anything and i mean the, the touch bar wasn't that long ago but it it was not that exciting to most of us and i mean sir i don't even have one yet i've never owned a computer with a touch bar even what two years on or whatever it is you're not missing much yeah well, i know and and so i think we're all just thirsty for something interesting and i think john you were right in saying that that they are doing interesting things on the phone i guess maybe they're doing interesting things on the ipad but again that doesn't personal personally affect me but, but they're not like on the ipad they've been so cautious there have been so few features that are even ipad specific forget about what the features do just how many features are unique to the ipad there are not that many of them as compared to the phone so it just gets like phone leftovers plus a little bit of ipad stuff and <laughs> what you could do like i mean what you can do with a much bigger more complicated ipad what you could do with multitasking that was more capable and flexible and configurable than the current split screen stuff which itself is a huge leap over like not having anything before or like having very primitive uh, multitasking to, to make these devices more capable and we used to talk about them becoming capable enough to replace your mac but at this point i'm saying just forget about that as a goal for now and just say let's you know they're they're so powerful hardware wise it, it's like that that power is being squandered to make a truly pro ipad and yeah, maybe make something that you can stick on a wall. Who knows? But like, they're not, they're not really, change in the iPad world is slow. How many years did it exist before we got the the bigger ones? And the bigger ones weren't that much bigger. How many years did it exist before we got an Apple supported stylus? And even then it hasn't changed much since then. So I'm, I'm, I'm I think there's plenty of room for hardware and software innovation in the iPad realm. It's just happening very slowly. 
All right. So that actually kind of segues relatively nicely to Ask ATP for this week. So Ish Abaz writes, uh, what would you say Apple's focus is at the moment? And naturally, Apple's a big company and it focuses on many, many, many different things. And so uh, I will even extend this to say, what is their focus and or what should their focus be? And I will start us off by saying, I think their focus is pretty heavily on iOS and specifically the iPhone. I don't think that's a particularly revolutionary point of view to have. And similarly unrevolutionary, their focus really, I, I want their focus to be actually possibly more than anything else on Siri. Because now that I have a competing cylinder in the house and a competing you know uh, person in a tube in the house, it's becoming ever more obvious to me how much I really dislike Siri and don't trust it for anything. And I kind of hope they're focusing on that. And we'll see if they really are. Marco, what's your thoughts? Uh, first of all, credit to uh, Asker Ishabaz. He's re- he's a really cool uh, indie iOS developer, and you should look at his stuff. Um, anyway. Also true. In, in broad strokes, I, I basically have two answers to this. Uh, number one, I think... You should listen to last week's episode of the talk show with John Gruber. Um, he and Ben Thompson got into a very interesting discussion about basically where Apple's growth in their revenue is, is really in services. And if you look at how that services thing breaks down, it, you know, number one is the app store revenue, like their 30% cut. Um, and then, you know, as that break, and then number two is iCloud storage. And so you look at things like, you know, are they likely to lower the cut? to app developers nope (laughs) are they likely to make better deals on iCloud storage or increase the free tier nope and there was an interesting discussion about how like you know Apple in the past was all about like selling you new hardware which the the interests of like what's best for Apple aligned well with what's best for the customers but as they get into more services revenue those interests start to diverge and it's it's a very interesting problem to have, probably not a good problem uh, to have, where in order to make more from services, you have to start doing a little more user-hostile stuff or like taxing your users in more and more ways. Um, and I think that's going to conflict with, with what's best for the user uh, more often than not. Uh, but anyway, I think I can summarize this in, in part, you know, what, you know, what their priority is versus what their priority should be. I think Apple used to be a software company that was funded by the sales of their hardware. And I think today's Apple is a hardware company that just uses software to provide basic support for their hardware. And I don't think Apple's leadership sees the difference between those two things. But there's a pretty big difference. There's a huge difference between those two things. To sell good products, good computing products... The software is really what sells them. You know, for most, for almost all these things, like the software is what matters here. You know, the hardware is nice, and that's it's great to have nice hardware, and it, good for Apple for you know continuing to make nice hardware most of the time. But it seems like the software is really stretched thin. Ultimately, it seems like Tim Cook's solution to a lot of problems is just make a new hardware platform. And then just throw some software on there that you might maintain. Maybe maybe throw another app store on there to get more app store revenue. But like, how's Apple TV doing? How's the HomePod doing? How's the iPad software doing? Like, you know, you just mentioned like they they can't they kind of can't 
keep up with it very well. How's the watch doing? How's the how's watch OS doing? How's the iMessage store doing? Like there's there's lots of app stores that keep being launched, lots of new software platforms that have launched over the last like five years or so. And it just seems like Apple has neither the the resources nor seemingly the interest to maintain them and to bring them forward and to maintain quality levels on, on the software side. All they want to do is sell us more and more hardware. Here, have have a dongle factory laptop. This laptop exists purely to sell dongles. Like, it, it, it you know, your solution here. Have a have a HomePod. Here, here's a, a an expensive home speaker um, that we're gonna put minimal effort on the software into and make it barely function with the assistant. Like, I, I think that's that's a, a huge divide between philosophies. And ultimately, I don't think Tim Cook understands software at all. And I question how much Johnny does. And so. The company's going to keep being run this way for a while. Ultimately, Steve was a software person who used hardware to make that happen. And I, I, I miss that. I hate any uh, analysis of Apple that includes it being described as either a software company or a hardware company. So I will set aside that. But setting aside that whole part and where Marco went into his usual downward spiral into being sad about Apple, um, <laughs> I, I agree I agree with the uh, the short version of the answer, which is where uh, where is Apple's focus at this moment? iPhone and services. That's where it is. Um, where should Apple's focus be? Probably iPhone and services, and in particular the services that have to do with voice assistance, as as Casey pointed out. So I think I think Apple's focus is more or less in the appropriate place, and there are some tweaks here and there, uh, but it, that clearly that's where it is. Um, and all that stuff that Apple uh, that, that Marco listed that as you know is Apple's version of let's see what stick. Maybe people want to buy iMessage apps. Let's try that or whatever. It's like you know uh, that's not where their focus is though. They do that. That is a pattern that they've done and. It's disappointing to us who who want things to be either well supported or not to exist, uh, but that's not where their focus is. Like that's clearly, you know, that's clearly not where their focus. If they were focusing there, they'd be constantly improving it or ditching it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I could just answer it with one word. What's their focus? Margins. That's the, yeah, that is their money, entire yeah. focus. <laughs> Margins. Like, talk about what is what does Tim Cook care about? Margins. <laughs> I don't think that actually is there. I don't think the focus is margins. And to, to do the, the nicer explanation of like, you know, Apple being a software company, or hardware company, like if, I think if you asked Apple, like in Apple's best version of itself, speaking as an institution or any individual person who's supposed to be a, an avatar for the institution, they would say that they're trying to sell you products like that. It's the whole package. The whole point of Apple is it's the whole package. Like they make the whole thing and it's supposed to solve a problem for you. It's supposed to provide an experience. And they lots of their products have been like that. The iPod is a great example. Portable music playing. Like, is it a hardware product? Is it a software product? Like, at various times, you could say, oh, the software, no one cares about it. It was all about the hardware. Oh, maybe the hardware doesn't matter. It's all about the software once you get to the iPhone or whatever. But, like, they're selling you products or solutions or, you know, there there is a benefit that comes as a unit. And then we break it down into pieces and see how each part is being maintained and what they're emphasizing and where they're able to innovate and how software affects the quality of the product and, you know, with the keyboard, how hardware affects your experience of the product and all that other stuff. But I'm not particularly cynical or pessimistic about where Apple's heart is. I think it comes down to uh, implementation. Uh, are they achieving their their stated, and I believe, real goal to provide good products that people like? Um, where where can they improve that? But focus is, is slightly different. I think what this question is, is getting at, what a lot of people are talking about is like, where 
you know, we often complain about areas where Apple's focus doesn't exist, and we very frequently acknowledge that Apple shouldn't be focused on the Mac more than the iPhone. That would be the wrong thing to do. Like, you know, every every aspect, not just how much money it makes, but in the end, how important the product is. The iPhone is a more important product, not just a more important product to Apple, but a more important product, period, than the Mac. It just is, right? And so if that's where the company's focus is, it's in the right place. And as we always say, they're doing pretty good with the phones for the most part, right? So uh, I, I think this question leads me to say that despite all of our complaining, Apple's focus in the right place, more or less. All right. Uh, Owl City writes, yes, seriously, uh, do you think the new Mac Pro will have only USB-C ports? I'm not so sure. I do think any f- new MacBook Pro absolutely will have only USB-C ports, no matter how much any of us, <laughs> Marco, wish it didn't. But the new Mac Pro, given that the iMac Pro came with some old USB ports, I think there's a pretty solid chance there'll be at least one or two. Uh, what is it, USB-A or B? I always get it wrong. A? A. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't really matter anyway. But uh, USB A ports. I think there'll be a couple on there, uh, but I think it'll be very heavy on USB C, uh, unless obviously they go ARM, in which all bets are off. But I don't think that's going to happen. John, what do you think? Uh, can you clarify? Did you ever get a clarification of what this question actually means? Because I think there'll be a power plug on it. Well, <laughs> I mean, like, what, what does come this on, mean, man? Come on. Well, there we don't have them on the MacBook. <laughs> You'll just have I'm just, the power I'm just over USB PD. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but I'm saying the Mac Pro will have a power plug. It won't be powered by USB C. I'm going to come out on a limb and say that. Um, yeah, they they just mean like, will it have any USB port that is not a C? Is that your interpretation of this question? Yes, correct. You can plug in any of the six USB C ports into the power adapter. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there is a reasonable chance that it will have uh, USB A. Uh, and the iMac Pro is the like that. That was my question. I I forget if I actually suggested it uh, to somebody, to, maybe uh, to Gruber before he did his interview or whatever. But like, the question would have been, why does the iMac Pro have USB A ports? Like if you're going to get Phil Schiller, uh, Craig Federighi, or whatever, or, or Johnny Ive, or anybody involved with the creation of this product, since you have to be so careful about how you ask things to Apple to get any reasonable answer, the simple question would be, why does the iMac Pro have USB A ports? And it's a trap. The question is a trap because the idea is they'll, they'll give you some explanation. And the follow-up is, how does that explanation not apply to insert product that you're angry about not having USB-A ports on, right? Like, that's, that's how that goes. But the answer, I think, is why does it have USB-A ports is because there's room for them and some of our customers want them. And so I'd say, okay, so uh, is there not room for them on your laptops or do people not want them on your laptops, right? And anyway, that's how that goes. But I think that is the answer. The answer is that there's room on the iMac Pro and some people want them. And, and they're cheap. That's another thing. And so they put them there. And I really hope on the iMac Pro there will be room for them because the iMac Pro should not be the size of a softball. On the Mac Pro, you mean? Uh, yeah, the Mac Pro. There'll be room for them because it'll be big. I think people do want them. This is convenient. Like, you got all this space in the back of this damn computer. You can't throw some A ports. It's just, it's just easier not to have to have an adapter. And and they're cheap. Um, so that's I would give it a, a 50-50 odds that uh, the Mac Pro has USB-A ports on it. Yeah, I would give it almost 100% odds. I mean, because the iMac Pro has them. By the way, and I agree with you, Casey, that I think, you know, likelihood of of MacBook Pros being released that ever have USB-A ports are pretty much zero. I think best we can hope for on new MacBook Pros is maybe the return of the SD slot. That's about, and that's the best we can hope for, for like the return or addition of old ports. So I I would not be, you know, I wouldn't be hoping for anything more than that. You know, on the laptops, you can can make a reasonable argument that you really can't fit most of the legacy ports, including USB-A, 
with the current thickness of those cases. Like, it just doesn't fit. The whole reason it, that that we can have it on the desktop so easily is because, you know, Apple has made this very expensive decision to tie Thunderbolt 3 into USB-C and to have all of their USB-C ports, except the one on the 12-inch MacBook, be Thunderbolt 3 ports. So therefore, the number of USB-C ports on any of their computers is limited by the amount of Thunderbolt ports that the chipset can support bandwidth-wise and controller-wise. So that's why, you know, you have four on most of the, you know, high-end products, you have two on on the lower-end ones, and you have zero on the 12-inch MacBook because that chipset doesn't actually support Thunderbolt. Uh, so on the iMac Pro, they have these two wonderful Thunderbolt 3 controllers that supply tons of bandwidth to those USB-C ports, but that's kind of a waste if you if you're using your usb ports mostly to plug in like keyboards and mice and charging cables and stuff like that i think it does totally make sense if you have the physical space to include regular old usb a ports that are not thunderbolt 3 ports now they could make usb c ports that aren't thunderbolt 3 ports they do in the macbook but you know like but like they they could decide like all right the rightmost four of them have thunderbolt and the leftmost four of them are just USB over USB-C. But I think they probably don't want that kind of port confusion. So that's why they, they restricted Thunderbolt 3 to, or they restricted USB-C to only be Thunderbolt 3 on most of their products. But again, I think that was a bad choice, especially since like, you know, most of the time on the laptops, one of those is being used for power. At least one of the other ones is probably being used for some kind of low-speed USB device, you know, if or charging a phone or something like that. Um, but anyway... On the desktops, they have the space. They already have USB built into the chipset that Intel supplies them. So, like, all they have to do is put the ports on the outside and run a cable to the chipset, and they have ports. So, it's it's kind of... You, you basically get them for free. So, you might as well. Adam Rourke writes, With manual transmissions on the decline and fewer people eager to own them, could you see the option flipping from its place in history as the starting point for the cheap car to becoming a premium one for the upper-end niche market? How much would you pay? So to build on this a little bit, when we were growing up, uh, even even the youngins, Marco and myself of, of the show, it used to be that if you didn't want to pay a whole pile of money for a car, you would get a manual transmission because it was between $500 and like $3,000 cheaper in order to do so. But now it seems like nobody wants a stick and it's becoming kind of passe or just like just just antiquated to to have one so would you pay additional money for a three-pedal car i would i absolutely would and i do think it is very quickly becoming uh either extinct or as adam adam said you know a niche thing i would absolutely pay one to two to three to four to maybe even more thousands of dollars for a car that i wanted to have a a three-pedal option but the more I think about it, the more I think my very next car, especially if I don't buy it soon, which I do not intend to buy a car soon, although we might talk about that in the after show, um, my next car may not be a, a six-speed. It very well be it may be my next one. Ugh. And that's in part because I've had terrible thoughts about Alfa Romeos, but uh, but that's a different issue. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I but I would pay many 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 dollars in order for this to be a possibility but unfortunately it's not quite so simple marco you i presume don't give a crap anymore that's true i don't give a crap anymore but i do think it's an interesting question and and i am you know standard disclaimer applies here 
this is for the U.S. Things are very different elsewhere, where manual transmission cars elsewhere have had a much longer and more widespread lifespan than they have in the U.S. Um, but yeah, basically in the U.S. right now, the only way you can get a manual is on a few very low-end cars and sports cars. And even the sports cars, it's getting increasingly rare. The question is interesting because it's kind of happening already. Like, right now, if you want a manual transmission, except for the very few cases where you can get them in lower-end cars, you kind of do have to pay extra in the sense that you have to get a, like a high-end sports car to even have it as an option. I have paid extra to get a higher-end model to get a transmission I like in the car I wanted. Now I don't have one anymore, but I'll tell you one thing's for sure. I'm not going to go back to an automatic, no matter what. Like that, that is an option I won't take. John, you're so cheap, you wouldn't pay any extra, would you? No. Well, so the the problem with this the scenario is like, um, could you see them flipping uh, and uh, and stopping being as part of a cheap car and becoming a premium? The problem is that there is a very narrow window between the time when uh, when it's not a cheap car thing anymore and the time when it disappears completely. Right? There's the tiny sliver of where like, oh, we don't put this on the cheap cars; they all get automatics. And most people don't want it even on the high-end cars, but there is some small subset of people that are willing to pay a premium to get the stick. And that window, we're currently in that window right now, uh, and I don't even know if it's a premium. Maybe it's just like a same price or a no-cost option. I think it was the M5. It was a no-cost option last time. Yeah, I most forget. BMWs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is it, and it's going to disappear. It's never going to be the case where it's available as a five thousand dollar option to ten thousand dollar option on a narrow range of high-end cars that will never be the case like it can all of the high-end cars now are giving up their manuals as even options like that's what's happening first they it became a no-cost option and then they're just like how many cars can we remove the stick from there are very few holdouts and it's leaving more and more cars the new m5 no stick option right we all knew that was going to happen right a lot of porsches are getting rid of the, the sticks even though they're they're able to sell more than probably than any other car maker just because of the, their their place in the market. So no, it's it's not going to be like you know there are many things that will end up being a premiums on high end cars for uh, for a small number of people, but the stick will have a very brief moment in that slot and then it will just disappear entirely. That's my prediction. Yep, I agree. And it makes me sad. And the the only place it will live on is in and it's not like a premium. It will live on in like like kit cars. People who have kit cars and you know sort of outside the mainstream of regular cars. Where you're like, I'm, I don't buy you know cars from dealers. I, I build them myself or uh, do aftermarket modifications and stuff like that. That's where the sticks will live on because forever people will want to like the same reason people like build and drive replica Model Ts. Like stick shift will never die in that realm. It will always be a historical thing that people are interested in. Even people who are alive today, like they never they never drove a real Model T, but they're interested in it because they're interested in history. And then the whole class of people who they're interested in cars because they were the cool cars when they were kids. That will never die, and sticks will always live there. And those that entire realm is premium in that everything there costs a bazillion dollars, and it really has no reflection on like cars that regular people buy. But setting that aside, just for you know, when you go to your BMW dealer for a brief time, you can get sticks as no cost option. Maybe there'll be a tiny window where you can pay extra for them, and then you just won't be able to get a stick on a BMW. That's what'll happen. <sighs> sigh. I know you're right, but sigh. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Betterment, Squarespace, and Aftershocks, and we will talk to you next week. Now the show is over, they didn't even mean to begin, cause it was accidental. accidental.
Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L. ISS, so that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T Marco Armin S I R A C U S A Syracuse. It's accidental. Oh, wait, John, I mean, you never answered uh, how, how much would you pay? Oh, I, I would probably pay like, uh, you know, a thousand or two. I mean, the, the proportion wise, if I'm buying a $25,000 car, obviously you know, the absolute amounts are not that much, but I would I would pay a premium for it. Well, it just, it's, I mean, this will get into what we're talking about in a second, but like, it just so totally changes the experience of driving a car. It, it's worse on low-end cars because the automatics and, and the, God forbid, CVTs are so much worse than the fancy car transmissions of the same kind so much more hunting for gears so much more weird droning and just like laggy reactions to everything you do like i'm reminded of every time i have to drive around in a rental accord even if it's the same model as mine i'm like oh god this car suddenly i hate this car this car that i like and use you change the transmission and it becomes something that i don't want to be in yeah it's a that's what that's what i'm saying like it's a it's a very very big difference in having the exact same car otherwise whether it's manual or automatic it, it it's a totally different driving experience so casey so what's going on with your uh, car stuff yeah so let's uh let's start with casey's car corner uh i got in my car what was this monday i think it was maybe it was monday uh after work and it was something like 90 or 95 degrees out and i very much wanted to turn the air conditioning on so i did and nothing happened. The screen, the little HVAC controls or whatever you call them, the, the air conditioning screen showed that the air conditioning was on maximum. It showed the fans were blowing as hard as they could possibly blow. And no air was moving. The fans were not on. And I drove home like that. Luckily, I had functioning windows. Luckily, I don't live that far from the office. But it was a bit toasty. I mean, you could almost take a running leap out of your office door and land in your house. That is true. But nevertheless, it was a warm five-minute drive. And when I got home, I parked the car in the garage, turned it off, waited about 15 seconds, turned it back on. Everything worked great. And so far, it has continued to work great since that fateful Monday or whatever day it was. But yeah, just a new little thing for me to stress out about on my car. Wonderful. I remember my air conditioning compressor went bad on my Civic and we weren't ready to buy a new car yet. So I just drove it for like a year and a half with no AC. No, absolutely not. It was rough. No. And now, granted, you live in, you know, a, an Arctic hellscape, so you could probably get away with it there. But down here where summer we actually a, have summer. Summer is very hot and humid up here as well. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't get to friggin' tell me that I don't have winter and then say, oh, but I have summer. It is. It's not. Here's the thing. It's not like you live in Arizona where it's 125. Your hot mm -hmm. weather is just like our hot weather. There's just slightly more of it. It's exactly the same with winter. You get slightly more winter. No. Most of your year is tepid. Most of your year is tepid and crappy. 
for the super hot part, you go look at the, the weather charts. You, yeah, your average temperature may be a little bit higher, but humidity, which you have too, that's what does it. When, it, when it's 93 and humid and you have a 95 and humid, that's the same weather. It's not like you're 125. I'm so angry at you right now. But <laughs> also, my, drive, my drives back for, to and from work are much longer than yours. <laughs> anyway, uh, I just wanted to share that there are still continuing issues with my BMW, and uh, somebody needs to donate me a Julia Quattrofolio. Please and thank you. Here's the thing. Somebody could donate you exactly the price of it, and you wouldn't buy it. You still wouldn't buy it. Yeah, probably not. I don't, <laughs> right, know. I, I don't know, man. And the MEAC I, might break on that after a year or two. That's, so. that's also true. I did see one in town, and it was a blue one, which is what I keep telling myself my next car will be blue. And this particular blue I did not care for. I think if I were to get a Quadrifoglio, it would have to be the red uh, of the one that I tested. But that being said... How does it look in white? Uh, mostly not good. We, we have some white ones tooling around here, and I continue to think it looks gross in any color. It's not gross in any color. Your eyes are as broken as your ears, Mr. Syracuse. No, no, no. Someone around here has an i8, by the way. I see it all the time now. Someone must have just gotten yeah. it. And I don't think it could. Are they still selling i8s new? I, don't I think know. so. I think so, yeah. Anyway, that, that, that's an awful car, but it looks really cool. Anyway, um, I, I've seen this Quattrofolio around town, and I, uh, I, I kind of want it. But oh, okay. and Speaking of cars you've seen around town, today I saw my first Maserati SUV. They make an SUV? Of course they do. Everyone has to. Is it as boring and expensive as their cars? I'm sure it'll be their best-selling model if it isn't already. Yeah, probably. So, Casey, so so you want you want to buy the Quadrifolio after all? Well done. Uh, I do and I don't. Like, the problem is it's an $80,000 car, and I absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, do not want to spend $80,000. So, Casey, you want to lease the Quadrifolio <laughs> after all? <laughs> well, but that's, I mean, that's equivalent money. You just spread out. But um, No, that's not how leases work. Oh, whatever. You know, it's, it's, you know what I mean? You, you're, you're, you're I'm not sure I do. But, but what I'm, okay. So let me finish my thought. What I'm driving at though is I've been thinking a lot about getting, what would the price of, of a Quadrifoglio be after a lease? You know, so this is a two or three year old car. From my understanding, it's they're they're having a hard time moving any of them, but I would, I would assume the Quadrifoglio would be even worse since it's an $80,000 car. And since it doesn't have a good transmission, I don't have a clutch to worry about, and tires are replaceable, and nobody wants to buy an Alfa Romeo because they presumably can't run for more than 10 minutes at a time. So could I steal one for like 20 or 30 or 40 grand, you know, after it comes off lease? No, first of all, no. So, so, okay, so what do they run new, like 70, 80? Yeah. All right. Even a terrible car, you know, it's going to have a lease residual of something like, you know... 50 percent or something like that so assume assume that the post-lease buyout price best case might be 40 percent and that's best case it's probably more than that um so what's 40 percent of it let's you know 40 grand or something like that 30 35 40 grand and that's 40 percent of 80 is 32 grand and and then that's really best case that's unlikely it's more it's going to be more like 50 to 60 percent um and so you're looking at like you know in the in like the forty to fifty range. Secondly, for God's sake, after buying a BMW and having problems servicing <laughs> it, do not buy an Alpha and like a, a three year old Alpha that someone else leased and and drove really hard probably because why else would you buy one? Um, yeah, first of all, that's a terrible idea. And then finally, if they're having trouble moving them, you might be able to take advantage of the best deal in buying cars, which is lease specials. 
Lee specials are how auto manufacturers dump inventory of models that they want to move or to, or to temporarily boost sales for a certain quarterly margin or something like that. Mm. So if if this is actually if they're actually not moving, which I wouldn't assume that the high end sporty model is not moving just because the rest of the line isn't right, right. But if that is indeed the case, the the deal to be had is going to be on a lease special, not on some kind of weird off lease thing. And that also totally avoids the issue of your maintenance problem with buying uh, unreliable high performance brand cars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I I shouldn't do it. I won't do it. But it's tempting. It is tempting. Underscore my name is T in the chat says, at least wait until it gets to beta Romeo. <laughs> that is a truly terrible joke that I approve of. Um, the other thing I wanted to share in Casey's Car Corner is I went on a test drive as a passenger uh, in a brand new Jeep uh, Wrangler JL, which is like the equivalent of saying, you know, an F30, if you will. And uh, it was nice for a Jeep. I mean, it has all of the problems that Jeeps have. It's tall, it's slow, it's bumpy, it's not extraordinarily cushy inside. This one actually had uh, manual windows. It was a brand new car, sold in 2018 (laughs) with manual windows. And, And the reason being, it actually makes sense. The reason being is because if you are the kind of person that would take the doors off, which I would be, and then it makes sense that you would want as little weight in the doors as possible. So taking them off would be easier. And having all the weight of, you know, uh, a power window um, uh, actuator or what have you and motor and all that, that is not insignificant. And additionally, it didn't have power door locks for the exact same reason. And I laughed about that. I think if I were to buy one, I would get power, power door locks. I would get power windows, etc. But I, I respect those who don't get them, especially if it's because they want to take the doors off. Um, this particular one had the most, it, it was, it wasn't a beater, but it was, and it wasn't stripped, but it was certainly not a high end model. Um, it didn't have the very nice infotainment. So the infotainment was kind of garbage and the interior bits were fine. They were not great. They were certainly not, you know, of, of European quality, but they were fine. This particular one had the, had the six cylinder and it was decent from a, from the passenger seat. Uh, but you know what? It was, um, it was, it was not bad. The one thing that I noticed that really bothered me though, is that when Aaron's car comes to a stop, her XC 90, when it comes to a stop and turns itself off, do either of your cars do this, John? I forget. Stop, start. No, thank God. I have avoided that so far. <laughs> well, it's actually, you get used to it. It's not terrible, but when Aaron's car comes to a no, stop, no, it is terrible. You can get used to it, but it is terrible. I would disable it. I would, I would, I would consider not buying a car if I couldn't disable it. Yeah fair it's that i bad. mean uh, we don't I, I well so here's the thing in the volvo in the warm weather because we actually have summer here unlike in boston um what happens is the car will turn off and the air conditioning will still run for a solid couple of minutes and then eventually when the car realizes oh the air conditioning seems to be fading it'll actually start itself back up or perhaps not even turn itself off in the first place in order to get the cabin to stay cool Meanwhile, the Jeep and, you know, and, and this is one of those like small touches that is just indicative of the difference between American and, and, and European cars. The Jeep, you know, two seconds after starting it, after it had been sitting out in a 
in the hot sun all day. You know, we came to the first stoplight, it turned itself off, and the air conditioning conked out within like 10 seconds. Now, granted, there was a button right on the dash, a physical button, which was a nice touch, uh, right on the dash in order to turn it off, but it was annoying, to say the least, that we got all of five seconds of air conditioning before it just gave up the ghost. And, uh, and that was too bad. Additionally, when we took off, the uh, the soft top was actually not latched properly, which was kind of funny because we were driving on a surface street, so we're doing like 20, 30 miles an hour. I'm like, man, this thing is loud. And remember, my dad has a JK Wrangler. He has had older Wranglers on and off my entire life. And, and so I know what a Wrangler is supposed to sound like, even with the soft top. And I was like, damn, this is loud. And then I look up and realize, oh, there's a little bit of sun coming through right above the windshield. That might be why. Uh, and so we had to pull over and latch it, and then it was much, much, much better. But... It wasn't bad inside. It it really is a lot nicer than they have ever been before, which I know is a low bar, but they're pretty nice inside. I I would definitely like to drive one. You're really not selling it very well. Yeah, I was. I took a ride. I took a took a ride in this Jeep the other day, and the you know, the interior sucked. The controls sucked. The air conditioning sucked. The auto start stop sucked. The it wasn't very comfortable. It was slow. It was boxy. It was bumpy. It was loud. The roof fell off. The doors are going to fall off. No power locks. No power windows. It was great. That is one interpretation of the story I just told. That is not the way I intended it, but that is one valid interpretation thereof.